if you love those who are in your family, you fight to pass them something of yours, you fight to pass something on to them, right? I know we might not all come from families that do that. Uh, perhaps our fathers maybe didn't do that, your mothers might not have done that, but nevertheless we get the concept. Many of us are probably thinking about how we can pass on something to one in our family, a future generation. I read of one story even this week, I think the news article was probably a few years old, where a millionaire passed on a lot of money, many millions, to one in her own family. Her pet dog. Twelve million dollars. A trust fund was established so that this pet dog, this little dog, could be well taken care of. The steward of the estate was one of uh, her other family members there. But nevertheless, even in a silly example like that, there she loves the dog so much she's going to fight to see blessings go to the next generation. Even to something like a dog. I wonder if you guys consider yourself loved. Particularly by those who have, in, in fact, gone before. Loved by those of the older generation. Father, mother, grandpa, grandma, a guardian, a teacher. And so they desire and they fight to pass you the blessings that they have. They strive to want for you what they already have. Or maybe even they fight so hard to see that you have what they never did. Amen. But all by God's grace. And so some of us, even right now, are planning. What is it that we are going to pass on to the next generation and fight that they actually lay hold of those blessings? It might not be $12 million. <laughs> it could be as simple as your photo albums that you're going to pass on. Beloved and cherished memories to see the next generation blessed. From today's passage, we are invited to see God fighting for his next chosen generation. As he gives himself and all of his resources to see that this next generation be secured by his promises and lay hold of which God had already promised. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 5. We find ourselves here, Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. And then we go all the way through the end of 26. A couple of weeks ago, we covered uh, what comes immediately before. Here, we're looking at you know future generations, right? We're looking at the second generation. Abraham has takes another wife, and they have a lot of children. And then we turned and, and saw that Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son through Hagar, uh, Ishmael himself has many generations after him. He has 12 sons, and then they're going to go on and uh, continue to have more children and more children and more children. But now at this point in the story, we anticipate, right? We've already surveyed what's going on in the broad history of God, how God is working there. Now at this point in the story, we anticipate covering the up-and-coming generations of Isaac. We're even directed towards there in verse 19. Go ahead and look there. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And here the story of how Isaac takes Rebekah to be his wife is summarized so nicely and briefly. But the story of Isaac having offspring of his own would not be without complications. So already we see that something needs to be overcome because they can't have kids. They're barren. Of course, that's really strange. Given Isaac is the chosen one to inherit the promises of God. God did not choose Ishmael, his half-brother, nor did God choose any of his other siblings. God had promised to build a nation, to build a people on Isaac. And God said it was through his offspring that the nations would be blessed. Those are the promises that went to Abraham, and now these are the promises that go to Isaac. But given, again, that they can't have children, this seems like some kind of cruel cosmic joke, right? Right? I mean, what God promises to do for them, 
hinges on the one thing that Isaac and Rebekah cannot do. They're, they're in the same exact position that Abraham and Sarah were many decades before. I mean, if you guys were Isaac and Rebekah, you know that these promises are for you. What would you conclude about God after trying and trying and trying again to have children? And yet, and yet facing a seemingly what would seem to be failure after failure after failure. Uh, you know, we might, I mean, just think about our own situation where you feel like God has somehow failed you. What do you, what do you end up concluding about God? You might conclude that God is, he makes empty promises and that he is unfaithful. And so you, you suffer from disappointment and discouragement because you doubt God's faithfulness, maybe even his integrity. Maybe some of us think that God might make a mistake. Right? He makes mistakes in, in picking you, the barren couple. And so then you might conclude that God himself is fallible, that he too makes mistakes and therefore he ought not be trusted. Or maybe we think God is going to somehow abandon us because we can't fulfill his promises. Imagine that. And he's going to go on to a plan B. He's going to get a new couple. He's going to get a new them. And so you might conclude that God abandons us after he realizes who we are. Amidst all these possible things and avenues that we could travel down, and probably we have indeed traveled down before, Thank God that Isaac here stands as an example, Isaac and Rebekah, and they choose not to doubt God's faithfulness, conclude that God somehow, uh, conclude wrongly that God makes mistakes, or to think that God somehow abandons them. But here, Isaac and Rebekah, they choose to live in the reality that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Despite whatever problems we might bring to God or whatever problems are thrown at God, he always does what he says. And so Isaac and Rebekah, they live in this reality. And that's what we see in today's passage. Despite all of our brokenness, despite all of our sin, despite all of our circumstances, God fights to see his chosen people lay hold of his promises. Do you guys realize that in Scripture, God says that He is faithful, right, to a thousand generations, meaning everyone who ever believes in Him, right? He holds that out so that we might believe that and live in those realities. And here you see Him being faithful to the second generation. So whatever He does here, it's evidence, right, to us, the thousand generations and however many come after about who this God is. So we best... Pay attention to what God does here. Because this establishes the evidence of his faithfulness. As we see all the problems that he fights to overcome, we look first at the problem of cursed bodies. God is faithful. And so here in this passage, we see him faithful to overcome cursed bodies. There's a problem of barrenness, right? This takes place in 19 to 34. Barrenness certainly is a problem with sin. That's, that's where barrenness really stems from, doesn't it? I mean, without doubt, barrenness is a result of sin and any health problem. And God created man good in the very beginning. He created us to be in a relationship with him and we were without sin. And so he declares all of creation. He says, this is good. This is very good. But once sin enters into the world, complete spiritual and physical decay follow on its heels. Complete spiritual and physical decay follow on the heels of the entrance of sin. So spiritual decay, the Bible says that people's hearts are bent against God by nature. And so we sin against God. Everybody sins against God. Doing what we want instead of living to worship and please God. Then there are, the Bible also speaks of a physical decay. So sickness and death. Even the physical world, the whole entire world, Romans 8 says, is groaning with birth pangs, waiting for God to recreate everything. So the earth suffers from physical decay. You can think of like natural disasters, for example. Right? We won't need to fear natural disasters once we're in heaven. As the world is as it ought to be. But because of sin, even the ground is cursed. 
And we all suffer from these effects, spiritual and physical decay. And here Isaac and Rebekah experience this too. And in this passage, we see both. They suffer from physical, or the earth suffers from physical. They too suffer from physical problems. And they also suffer from spiritual, as we see a little bit later. But in the midst of this suffering, what do we see Isaac and Rebekah do? Here we should be thinking too, what is it that we do in the midst of our suffering? What do they do in response? Are they moping? Are they complaining? Are they doubting? Look at verse 21. We see here that he's ex- they're actually praying to God. This is what Isaac and Rebekah is up to. Verse 21, 22. He prayed to the Lord because his wife could not conceive. So as I mentioned earlier, many of you guys know, they find themselves in the same position that Abraham and Sarah found themselves to. The first generation is barren, and now the second is as well. But where Abraham's and Sarah's story of overcoming their barrenness, or more accurately put, God overcoming their barrenness, while that story lasts a number of chapters, like a handful of chapters, you know, going back and forth and making mistakes, they're trying to force God's will, force his hand, Isaac and Rebekah's problem is resolved in one verse. Interesting, isn't it? And we are drawn to his piety and her piety in verse 21. Contrast that with Abraham and Sarah. They come up with a plan on how to manufacture offspring. They sin. They get into a lot of trouble. But here, Isaac and Rebekah are praying to their sovereign God. And 21 and 22 draws us. The emphasis here is on their prayer in the midst of difficulty. So if you read those verses, you see Isaac prays because of a struggle. His wife was barren. The twins are jostling in their, in Rebekah's tummy. God has already blessed them. There's a struggle even in Rebekah. And then so she prays. So it's pray because of a struggle. She experiences a struggle and so she prays. The emphasis there is that it, around suffering, in the midst of struggle... Here we have two godly people praying to the Lord. They pray to the sovereign Lord because of their struggle, and so the Lord answers. By the way, you know how old <clears throat> Isaac was when he took Rebecca? He was 40 years old when he got married. You know how long it took for them to have children, for God to bless them with children? Later on in this chapter, it says that he, they give birth there when... She gives birth when he is 20 years older. So he's summarizing their, their possible struggle and their piety in one verse. They pray because of a struggle. When there is a struggle, she prays. Regarding prayer, it's amazing that God's promises, right? His eternal promises are brought about through his people's prayer. In reading the story, everyone knows, right? Everybody knows that Isaac will have children. There is no doubt. God flung the stars in his face just by speaking. Where there was nothing, all of a sudden there's something. He does the same thing in Sarah's womb, right? Where there is nothing, he puts a something. And so we know when the promises are passing on, when God here fights and overcomes physical barrenness, we know he's going to give her a child. And Isaac himself, I mean, just imagine, I mean, he is living proof, right, that God fulfills his promises. So not only does he know from uh, here that God created the entire world, not only does he know that the promises went to Abraham, his father, but he stands there as living proof. In fact, Rebecca came about through prayer, right? The, The servant that was sent out from Isaac's house or Abraham's house, Pray to the Lord. And so the Lord brought Rebekah along for Isaac. So they know too that they are going to have children. But they don't choose to go about their lives just simply saying, Oh, I don't need to depend on God because his promises are locked in anyways. He doesn't go about saying, Oh, I don't need to pray to God because his promises are locked in anyways. In God's providence, what he promises, those very answers are brought about through the prayers of his people. It's like God gives the railroad track of promises, but he also gives the railroad track that we are to hop on of prayer or piety. And so that's how his promises are brought about to fulfillment here. Isaac knew that God's faithfulness to his father 
was sealed in. And so he walks, therefore, in faith. The promises are given, and so I walk in faith. How much more ought we, having seen God's faithfulness to all of the chosen generations before us, how much more are we to entrust ourselves to God and plead His very faithfulness? Do you guys ever plead God's faithfulness when you pray? You know, if you, if you desire somebody to come to faith, you desire to, someone to be rescued from their sin, do you guys ever plead God's faithfulness to save when you pray? Now that in and of itself is not a guarantee that God will do um, what you ask, because ultimately even Christ himself prays, let your will be done, ultimately, not my own. But nevertheless, we can, when we're praying for someone to be saved, the second generation, right? If you guys, are you praying for another generation below you? You can pray very much on account of God's faithfulness. Lord, because you are faithful, because you are generous, because your promises stand, Lord, we pray that you would act. Now, that's a legitimate prayer. Now, this isn't a name it and claim it gospel. He doesn't necessarily promise that our children will be saved. But that doesn't mean we cannot and ought not plead his very own faithfulness to save. The Bible is very clear. He will save those whom he calls without a doubt. And so let us go about praying and pleading his faithfulness. God is faithful to the prayers here of his people and he answers them in two ways. First, he gives them children, right? The twins that I mentioned earlier. He gives them Esau and Jacob. Look there in verse 25, okay? So now all of a sudden you fast forward 20 years, out comes Esau, verse 25. He comes out all hairy and red. I can't help but think in like cartoon characters. So when somebody says hairy and red, I think of a cartoon character and I imagine him hairy and red. You know, this is intentionally meant to not be a good picture. He's kind of pictured as kind of like a barbarian in some ways, and we're going to go on and see why that is the truth there. Anyways, this, uh, his, hairy, his hairiness and his redness is where many people think he got his name. So Esau bears some resemblance to the Hebrew word for hairy. It's not exact, but it bears some resemblance. And then Esau later on in the chapter... If you go on and read there, he'll be known by the name of Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. So out comes this baby, this hairy and red baby. It's probably not a very pleasant sight. Um, and then as he's coming out, his younger brother is grasping his heel. Imagine that sight. I would have loved to get that on videotape. I got all my children almost on videotape, but this would have been fun to watch. Jacob is hanging on his heel, and that's where he gets his name. Jacob means, may he be at the heels. Now, in some ways, we're going to see very much how Jacob really does live up to this expectation. He's kind of, to some degree, a constant thorn in his brother's flesh. Another way of translating this name, a very legitimate way of translating this name, is may Yahweh be at his heels. Or may Yahweh be your rear guard. It is an incredible name. And how awesome is it that Jacob eventually will become Israel and forever Jacob or Israel, the leader of all of these people, the father of all of these people, would have that name. Despite all of his sin and despite the fact that he ends up being a thorn in his brother's side, his name, though, will always bear witness to the fact that Yahweh is our rear guard. That he fights for us. That he overcomes. That to those whom he calls, those whom he gives his promises, he fulfills them and he fights for them. Yahweh indeed is our rear guard and will always be behind us. Not because of who we are, but really because of who he is. Not only does he give them children, he also gives them a divine word, a definitive word about who these children are. Look there in verse 23. Against cultural norm, he picks the younger one to be the successor, to be the leader. He says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided or separated. Or basically, they're not going to get along. The older shall serve the younger. 
So this is against cultural norm here. He chooses the younger and not the older. The older instead is going to be serving the younger. And this would not be a friendly service, as future chapters are going to show. There is a degree of hostility here, deep hostility. The older brother rises up one day and says, it's time to kill the younger brother. Again, these guys are opposites. Verses 24 to 28 make this clear. Go ahead and look there. Um, Esau, the red hairy baby, would grow up to be a man of hunting. While Jacob, the grasper, would be what the ESV translates as quiet. Um, These opposites are played out further in verses 29 to 34. You can go ahead and turn there. And what happens is that Jacob cons Esau into selling him his birthright. I'll go ahead and read this section 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. And he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me a birthright now. So there he is conning at his brother's heels. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Now, some commentators don't really know if he's really going to die. From the passage, it doesn't really seem to be. It seems to be an exaggeration. And I'll show you why. Look there in verse 33. Jacob said, swear to me now. So this is opportunistic little brother. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now read this part. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And listen to what Esau does. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. If you come out from a long day of hunting or a long day of labor, you don't just gobble up some meat and lentil stew and then get up. You kind of lay on the ground, right? To catch your breath. It doesn't really appear that here that he's uh, you know, here about to die. But you see how different the brothers are. Jacob is at home. He's a homely man. His brother is outside and he's a hunter. Uh, Esau, you know, that red hairy man, he comes in and it, it's gruff, this language here. It's not conveyed so much in the English, but it is in the Hebrew. It says, give me some of that red stew, the red stuff. The hairy man walks in, give me some of the red stuff, I'm going to die. And then he says there in 34, right? He ate, he drank, he rose and went. He's gone. So while Jacob is conning his older brother, it's a sin, not supposed to do that, not trust, he's trying to force the Lord's blessing uh, and claim this birthright. Esau, you see the older brother sort of despising his birthright. That's why it says there in the end of that section, thus Esau despised his birthright. It seems like he doesn't even really care about these earthly blessings that are by right his. So these two brothers are different. And it reminds us, you know, the clashing that they have here reminds us of a clashing that we saw earlier in Genesis chapter 4 between those two brothers. And that clashing leads to one brother murdering the other. But despite the clashing, the conning, and the despising of earthly blessings, God still sets his promises on Isaac's offspring, Jacob, and fulfills them. But again, we're going to see this played out later on. What concerns us here is the fact that God overcomes the problem of cursed bodies. Bodies that are in decay in order to see his promises fulfilled. He sets his love on this second generation... And here he fights to see that they lay hold of his promises. The second thing that God overcomes are threats to his people's survival. Look there in chapter 26. The second thing God overcomes are threats to his people's survival. Look there in verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land. Again, the second generation here has a similar experience to the first Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah were going through a famine too. And they ended up going down to Egypt. Even though God had told them, stay in the land that you were going to inherit. Instead, they say, I don't think so. We're going to go down to Egypt. Now, some people think here that this story in Genesis chapter 26 is the same story in Genesis chapter 12. Because of this famine, and then because uh, Isaac and Rebekah end up interacting with a guy named Abimelech. And so naturally, those who might be skeptics say, oh, this is the same exact story. They're just replacing different names. This is all made up stuff anyways. But 
Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, that, he doesn't even give us that option. What does he say there? He says, now there was a famine in the land besides, interesting there, he himself is clarifying, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So this is not the same story. This isn't made up here. This is a legitimate experience, and Moses tells us that. And then we're going to get to Abimelech later on and explain what's going on there. But in light of the threat to their physical survival, God intervenes, right? Even in that in and of itself is a fighting to see the second generation lay hold of the promises. God intervenes with another word. Before there was a word about the twins, now he gives another word to Isaac. Look there in verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Interesting. You know, thank God, he warns him, don't do what your father did, but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to, to, to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give, you, give to you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I don't know about you, but I would be tempted very much so to live by sight and not by faith. There's a famine in the land. God says, don't you go down to there in the land of plenty, so it seems. Stay in this land. Dwell and live here. I recognize that you have inherited all of Abraham's earthly blessings, all of his family, all of his servants, all of his livestock, but I want you to dwell in this parched and famine land. It would be the equivalent of, you know, I try to think of the equivalent. This doesn't exactly convey the, the same thing, but, you know, in, in Dubai in the summertime, uh, it reaches up to, you know, similar temperatures that any desert would. Uh, you know, let's say 115, 120. It does the same thing in Phoenix. The difference, though, in Dubai is that there is great humidity, great humidity. So the first the first summer that we moved there, we moved in the dead of, of summer. <clears throat> it was just, it was nasty. It was terrible. And everywhere indoors, like the malls, had the AC running at full blast all the time. Winter, summer, doesn't matter. You're blasting it. Uh, and it would be the equivalent of like standing in front of the world's largest mall, blasting with AC inside. While I stand outside. And God sort of taps us on the shoulder and says, No, no, no. Don't go in there. Really, stay out here. I'm going to be with you. And all of your other relatives and all of your livestock. That's what God is doing here. He's standing in front of the prospect of survival for Isaac, Rebecca, and all that they own. And saying, you travel, you stay in this barren land. And I'm going to give it to you. Some of us, tempted to live by sight and not by faith, might say, I don't even know if I want that land. I want to go into the mall. But that's what he says. Stay in the land and I will lead you to the right places. But one threat is mounted on top of the other one. Not only is there a threat of physical survival, there is threat of a perceived threat, potential threat of being murdered. Right? He doesn't own very much land here. He owns a burial spot. That's about it. The threat comes up there in verse 6 of chapter 26. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was very attractive in appearance. So again, just like father, so goes the son. But this was a real threat, right? If you live in the land that is dominated and ruled by a tyrant, a dictator, right? What the dictator wants, the dictator gets. If he wants your wife, he gets your wife. And he doesn't, then you die. That, that, that's what was going on here. So Isaac lies to Abimelech, just like Abraham and Sarah did. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham did the exact same thing to A, Abimelech of Gerar. Now, Abimelech and Phicol, his right-hand man, were probably names associated with royalty. 
So this doesn't necessarily mean that this is the same Abimelech or the same Phicol. It would be like the equivalent of saying, let's say, the English crown name of Edward or George or Elizabeth. Right? Clearly Moses isn't seeing great need to clarify which Edward or which George or which Elizabeth this is. This is just Abimelech, king of a pagan nation. This is just Phicol, his right-hand man. That's why these names are coming up again, similar to Pharaoh or something like that. So for a time, Isaac and Rebekah, they get away with a lie. But of course, their sins catch up to them. Look there in verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now you would figure, right, that, that Abimelech's going to be ticked. Maybe put him to death. Maybe take her for his wife. But he doesn't do any of that. Look at verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Interesting there. Here the pagan king is questioning the man of God about his integrity. Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? Good. You know, he's protecting his people. He says, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So somehow this laughing is not just the laughing of a brother and sister. Somehow this is a more intimate laughing. And what comes about is Abimelech has more integrity, a more desire to see people protected more fear of God almost than God's very chosen one. God protects Isaac here through the pagan king. Praise God. He protects him from this potential threat. But unfortunately, it takes a pagan king to set the, God, the man of God straight. And unfortunately, in the life of the patriarch, same with Abraham, he was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but the nations find him to be a curse. But there is God, nevertheless, saving his people from potential threat and even from their very own selves, their very own sins, in order that they would lay hold of the promises. Look what else God does there for the second generation of his chosen people, right? We're thinking about the threats, threats of starvation, threats of murder. He returns here, Moses returns back in verse chapter 12 to, to make a point here that God is alleviating this threat of survival, this threat of starvation. Verse 12, he sowed and reaped a hundredfold. He, in, he begins there with a famine, now he sows and reaps a hundredfold. Threat of starvation is gone, there is no more famine. Verse 13, God makes him even more wealthy than he already was. Verse 14, his, he has possessions, he has flocks, he has herds, he has many servants. You see all the reversals God is bringing about in order that the people would lay hold of the promises. From barrenness to bearing twins, God overcomes the promise of cursed bodies. From starvation to plenty, from the threat of death to now safety, God overcomes threats to Isaac and Rebekah's survival, starvation threat, the perceived murder threat. And he does all of this because he wants to be true to himself. And he wants his people to know this. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore, I want you to know Israel. Right, this is Moses right before they're about to go into the promised land. I want you to, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Beautiful here. Beautiful part here we see. As God moves again to fulfill his promises, he overcomes problems. The last major problem God overcomes is the problem of sinful people. He's so determined to see people lay hold of, of salvation and his promises that he even says, look, I know you struggle with sin, but I'm going to overcome that in and of itself. We already saw Isaac and Rebekah. They're the ones who sin, but yet God protects them. But they aren't the only ones who are sitting here. The other people sitting here are the Philistines and the shepherds of Gerar. Their sin leads to discord and leads to strife. 
For the Philistines, discord bruised in their hearts, and Isaac gained, as Isaac gains wealth. Verse 14, look there. Is it the Philistines envy him? And this leads to Abimelech, this leads to Abimelech commanding that Isaac go away. Verse 16, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are. And then this discord escalates there in 17 on. And this discord escalates over these things about wells. Now, in reading this in my devotions, I was wondering, you know, uh, what's the deal with these wells? Like, why do I care about wells? You know, I go to the store, I got my bottle of water, I got my filter. Um, so look there in 15, right? He mentions the wells dug by Abraham, and then they were filled in by the Philistines. In verse 17 to 18, they dig again the wells dug by Abraham in the previous generation. Verse 20, there's discord over a new well, and so they name that well contention, because they had contention in building it. Verse 21, the same thing there. They name it Sitna, which means enmity, because the people had enmity towards them. You know, with our Western and modern ears, it's hard to grasp the significance of what's going on here as the herdsmen of Gerar fight with Isaac for these wells. It's helpful for us to keep in mind that, there may, that they were in a time of famine. And so all of a sudden, the wells mean a whole lot more. They're fighting for survival here. Now, it does say that a long period went by, right? So maybe they are still in, in, in drought. We're not entirely sure. But another thing to keep in mind, too, is that there were ownership rights involved when digging a well. Ownership rights. So what we have here is the second generation, Isaac, fighting with the Philistines over not his own wells, but the wells that his father had dug up. The promises of the land went to initially Abraham. And then all of a sudden you see Isaac fighting for these wells, which come with ownership rights of the land. Now all of a sudden, now there's a whole lot more at stake. There's survival, but not only that though, the promises of God. While it is about water, it is not just about water. It's about Isaac making that which, that which was his father's his very own. Or rather, God taking what, 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 what he gave the first generation and then passing it to the second generation. Interesting, the second generation, they do receive what the first generation had, but not without difficulty. It comes through enmity, strife, contention. And perhaps you are in a position of wanting to pass on something to the next generation. Maybe you're praying that your faith would be passed on to the next generation. You know, oftentimes we end up thinking that it's going to be a lot easier than it really is. We think that if we, this is my own temptation, that if we do certain things like evangelize our children, like doing family devotions, like spending time with our kids, like raising them to appreciate Christian morality... We think that'll make it easier for them or guarantee more like that they embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't we think that? If we do certain things, I mean, just imagine when our children, if our children were to walk away right now or say, I'm not a Christian, I actually hate Jesus. Uh, wouldn't you think a little bit, but I, did, I just did all this stuff. I disciple my children. I, 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 I reached out to them. I evangelized. I spent a good time with them. They grew up in a good family. But here isn't it interesting that the second generation must receive the promises through enmity, strife, contention, barrenness, tests, multiple decades of struggle, lying, endangerment. The list could go on and on. This passage reminds us that God determines that those after us must oftentimes, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes go through their own set of difficulties and challenges in order to learn to live by faith and not by sight and to know and plead the faithfulness of God. The silver lining in our sometimes dark cloud is that as they go through their own challenges, 
reaping the consequences of all of their sins, as I know some of you are experiencing even right now. As they experience their difficulties, learning to live by faith and not by sight, so God is committed that you hold on to the promises yourself. Our hope is not in what our eyes can see in this life, but in a good and sovereign God whose eyes see into eternity. This is God committing himself to you to test, uh, to, so that you would testify to his very faithfulness. That the earth could give way, the mountains could fall into the sea, but yet I have Christ. All I have is Christ. The song that we just proclaimed, hopefully as a prayer and a praise to this great God, that despite whatever might go, around, go on around me, even in my family's life, no matter how difficult it is, I have Jesus. And that I possess the promises of God as I depend on a faithful God. Not my circumstances. Not the things that our eyes can see. But in a good and sovereign God whose eyes see into eternity. By God's power and grace, the discord fades. Praise God. The quarreling ceases. And in verse 22, it doesn't seem to be a climax. They get a well. But really, what's going on here again is they're fighting for what the first generation has. And they're making it their own. God is clearly giving to the second generation what he gave the first. And they named this well Rehoboth, which means broad places. It's a glimmer of what is to come, isn't it? Not just a source of water, but they get proprietary rights, ownership rights. They get a little glimmer of peace in the land of promise. That, day, that same day, it seems, look there, verse 23, 23, they move from there. He went up to Beersheba. And what does God do again? He intervenes. He gives them a word. He fights for, for, that they know, that they believe, that they persist. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am God. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not how many of us need to hear that today? I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. That's a, that's a blessing. That's a promise of presence. And I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So right there, the Lord intervenes. He gives a promise, a promise of protection. Do not fear, a promise of blessing. I will indeed bless you. You see all these reversals from barrenness to bearing twins, from the survival threats to now being secured, from discord and sinning over fighting over the land to calm and legitimate ownership rights. And all of that is sort of enveloped in the presence of God to be with his people. The people who repent and believe and trust in God to be who he is. And this section also brings us up another reversal here. This discord that was between Abimelech and Phicol and then Isaac and Rebekah. Right? They are sent out by this pagan nation. You are a curse to us. You get away. You put us in harm's danger. Or you put us in a, a dangerous pathway. Look there what happens in 26 to 33. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come after me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. You see what they're noticing there, this pagan nation? The pagan nation now comes in submission to the people of God. They're putting themselves under. They're saying, look, I recognize that what? 20, 20, 28 and 29. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. That's the exact same thing that God had promised Isaac, isn't it? You go back to the promise there in 24. I am God of Abraham, 
your father, fear not, for I am with you. And so here now the pagan nation, they see and they recognize and they say, I want safety underneath you. This is hard evidence to a pagan king that God is true to himself. He recognizes that God is with them. And his natural move is to align himself with him. You are now blessed of the Lord. So there's Isaac. There's Rebekah. There they stand there in Beersheba, just as his father did with Abimelech in Abraham's time. The nations streaming to the people of God, blessing them and recognizing that God is present with them. And of course, what does all this lead to there for uh, Isaac, verse 25? After the promises are given, after God wants him to have security and who he is, he says, it says there, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. That's worship. God secures for the second generation his very own promises. All by his grace, as God himself is the one overcoming all of these various things. Brother and sister, you know, God is faithful to a thousand generations, to those who love him, to those who turn from their sins and have believed on Christ. And if that is you, you are part of these generations. He is faithful. He commits himself entirely, not like us. We might consider commit ourselves just until, you know, you might become annoying to me in my sin. Then, therefore, I pull back, I draw back. Not God. He's committed to his people, his generations. And if you believe, you are part of those generations. He exhausts himself and his very own self, his very own son, by his blood for you. So that he would be true to himself and so that you would know that he can be trusted. He is determined to be faithful to you, not because of anything you have done, but really because of who he is. What was it that made God choose and then be faithful to Abraham and then to do the same to Isaac and then he will do to Jacob? Nothing made them differ. He just did it because of God's very own good pleasure. You see that God has done this. He has shown his faithfulness to us in the cross. What we see in the cross of Christ as Jesus takes on flesh, He lives a perfect life. He bears the wrath that we deserve and dies on the cross as a substitution for us and then is raised from the dead and then is seated back up at the Father's right hand. That is sheer determination to see God's people lay hold of his promise of salvation and forgiveness. Think of the problem of cursed bodies. In this chapter here, he overcomes the barren problem. But regarding Christ, he overcomes the virgin problem. As Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. You think of the problem of the threat of survival. Here in this chapter, he overcomes the threat of survival to his people. Whether it be famine or a potential threat of death. Regarding Christ, he overcomes not just threats, but actual actions that lead to crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. Not just a threat, but an actual crucifixion. And on the cross, God overcomes the problem of sin. Our very own sin. Here, not even his people's own sin, but you've got the Philistine sin. And none of those things can derail God's promises going to the next generation. Thank God that it is the same with Jesus Christ. Not only does God promise to save sinners, but his plans can never be moved by sin. Even our very own sin that killed Christ. Praise God that it is our sin that's the thing that motivated God to send his son. He saw a problem and he said, I will take care of that sin all on my own. Because we know that men in our own flesh, we cannot do that. Sinful men cannot save sinful men, which is why we need the God-man of Jesus Christ. That's what compels him, out of his love. He sees a problem and he himself moves to solve it. This is, why the, this is why Jesus came to die. To die on the cross. To do away with sin. 
and then to remember them no more. All these reversals we see, this is what Isaac saw, but now as we stand on this side of the the cross, we see so much more evidence. This is the ultimate picture, the ultimate display of God's faithfulness to you if you are a Christian. Now to conclude, let me speak to you, if you're visiting and you know yourself not to follow Jesus, let me speak to you now. Let me ask you a question. You know, we go through life's trials and temptations and difficulties, and you will just like Isaac and Rebecca did. But why would you choose to lay hold of, let's say, some sort of earthly blessing that you yourself tell, assign to be a blessing? Why would you choose to lay hold of an earthly blessing on your own when you can have this faithful God laboring to ensure for you an eternal blessing? Why would you do that? This faithful God stands ready to fight, as we just saw. Ready to promise, ready to love, ready to see all those promise, uh, the problems and say, despite those problems, I will overcome them for you. Isn't that awesome that we have this God, the Christians have a God, according to the word, who stands ready to do all of that if you would repent of your sins and believe. The Bible says that God is not only faithful to save, but he is also faithful to judge. And he he himself has created us to believe in him and to side with him as the only king. Which also means that if you do not repent and believe, that there is indeed judgment. The Bible says even judgment in hell because of our sin, which I'm sure you already know that you sin. The good news once again is that God delivers. And that he saves all because of his good grace. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a powerful God, a sovereign God, a faithful God. And that in love you give yourself, you give your very own son to die on the cross for sins. Father, we pray that we would look at the cross. I mean, not only would we look at Abraham's life and Isaac's life and, and all the people who lived by faith, but we would look particularly at the cross of Christ and see your great faithfulness displayed to those who repent and believe. Father, we ask that when our faith is faltering and when it wobbles, that you would root us in your own very faithfulness. We pray that we would cast ourselves at your feet in prayer, just like Isaac and Rebecca did, in order that we might plead your faithfulness and continue to trust in you and what you have determined. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be sidetracked or derailed, but yet we would go to the word to see the things that you have indeed promised to us. Joy in the midst of struggle. Ultimate deliverance. Comfort through the blood of Christ. Comfort even from other Christians as we too know the comfort of Jesus Christ. You promise us eternal life. You promise us forgiveness. You promise us a freedom from shame. You promise that you would wipe away every tear from our eyes one day. And Lord, you promise your presence. Lord, we pray that you would make yourself known to us even amidst all of the difficult circumstances we go through for your sake. To the praise of Jesus Christ's name. Amen.